uh, what I want to do over the next three weeks is we're going to be looking in this hour at Paul's fantastic declaration of the supremacy and the superiority of Christ to the church in Colossae. And so what I want you to do is turn with me now in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And um, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through to 23 over the next three weeks. Uh, and it's, a, it's an amazing passage of Scripture. To me, it's probably the quintessential chapter on the supremacy of Christ in all of Scripture. Uh, it highlights the majesty of Christ, and it's just an amazing text. So let's read together. I'm going to read the whole passage, and I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. So um, Paul writes in verse 13, that it was God, it says, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. And then from here on, He is simply pouring out from His heart about His Lord and His Savior, Jesus Christ. And He says in verse 14, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly grounded and steadfast and not moving away from the hope of the gospel which you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that your word is life-giving and that you give it to us with the power of your spirit. We pray that you enlighten our eyes and our minds to what you have for us this morning and bless this time together, in Christ's name. Amen. So the word philosophy comes from the Greek word philosophia, which means the love of wisdom. And the study of philosophy really is <clears throat> about using rational argument or critical thinking to analyze how human beings think or perceive things or how they understand the, the physical and the abstract world around them. Questions like, uh, what is real or can truth really be known? These are all philosophical questions and no book of the New Testament or the Bible, in fact, speaks more with more relevance to the issue of philosophy than does the epistle to the Colossians. Now, I think we can all agree that we live in the most technologically advanced era of all time. There's no doubt. I, I recently read of the first hydrogen car that came to market in Australia. It literally charges up whatever that means in, in five minutes. 
It can drive a thousand kilometers on one tank of hydrogen, which is just a small amount. And as it does so, it actually purifies 455,000 liters of air. And all that comes out of the exhaust pipe is pure water. So technologically, we do certainly live in the most advanced age of all time. But the lies, friends, the lies are still the same. If we go back to Genesis 3, 5, Satan said to Eve, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, and that was from the tree that was in the middle of the garden, he said, In that day your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's the same lie that is propagated today still. Man believes in himself and in his own ability to sort out all the problems, to sort them out apart from God as he is revealed in creation and in his word and in Jesus Christ. Man continues to strive to seek solutions for all of the problems of society, and they use a secular humanism to do so, and in some cases, even a religious syncretism. But many centuries have passed since that incident in the Garden of Eden, but man is still going at it in the same way. It, man tries very hard to ignore God and claims that everything that exists happened by some crazy cosmic Big Bang accident. And when they do acknowledge God, Christ is sometimes merely seen as a guru for Christians. Something at the, like a lamp they rub and this genie pops out. And they, they put Jesus on par with all the other man-made gods of this world. Gods even exist in this day and age that, that have to do with personal opinions. That's a God of this age. I recently saw a, a bumper sticker and, and I actually bought it. Tanya said I should stick, put it on my car. And it goes like this. It says, everyone is entitled to my opinion. <laughs> Denver agrees. <laughs> we laugh, but that's a religion. It's a religion that says, I believe in that which works for me. Uh, that's my truth. And what works for you doesn't necessarily work for me, so leave me alone. That's a God of this age. And that's why the book of Colossians is so relevant to us today. This New Age movement says that we are all gods. Everything is interrelated. Nature, God, human beings, we're all interrelated. There's a guy called John Randolph Price. He's a New Age proponent. He says this, and listen to this. That's scary. He says... Everyone should affirm, quote, I am, I and the Father are one. And all the Father has is mine. In truth, I am the Christ of God. And when I read that, I was horrified that something so blasphemous could come out of anybody's mouth. But that is the world that we live in today. These delusions from Satan in the Garden of Eden are just magnified in this world that we live today. And friends, it was no different in the days of first century Rome. The world was an incredibly safe place. Life was everything that anybody could ever hope for. It was peaceful. It was called the Pax Romana, for those of you who are interested in history. It's called the Peace of Rome. 
Caesar in those days was lowercase lord, and he was lowercase savior because through his victories, he had brought incredible peace and prosperity to the known world at the time. And the, the whole fabric of society was geared towards maintaining the status quo. The average Roman citizen, to them, it literally was peace, peace, perfect peace all the time. And this was the world of Asia Minor that Paul ministered in. So the question we ask then is, why this letter to the Colossians? Why write this letter? Well, we know that Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and according to Acts 19, verses 8 through 10, it was during that time that all of the Romans, Roman province of Asia heard the word of God preached, both Jews and Greeks, an incredible feat if you think about it. Um, and it was during that very time that a young man from Colossae uh, heard the word of God preached. His name was Epaphras, and he got saved. And uh, he then hung around, he stuck around in Ephesus, and he was trained by Paul to go back to go and plant a church in his hometown. And uh, what we also know about the church in Colossae was that even though the majority of the population was Jewish or, or um, the, the church itself was primarily Gentile. And it was during Paul's imprisonment in Rome that Epaphras made a trip back there. The church, um, the church had been going for a number of years, and uh, it must have been around 62 AD. He made this trip, and he went all the way back to Rome to go and see Paul. And even though he brought a good report about what was going on in the church, the main reason he went to see Paul was to seek his advice, to ask him advice about this this heresy that was starting to creep into the church. He needed his help to counter this false teaching that was threatening the church in Colossae. And so Paul writes this letter to confront these false teachers. And this letter then became one of the main and most important letters in the canon of the New Testament because it teaches us something about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But where does it all start? What were the issues that brought about this letter? But the truth is, we don't really know. It's very vague. It doesn't tell us specifically what the heresy in Colossae was. But as we study the book, as we study the themes therein, as we study Paul's argument throughout the whole book, we can ascertain some of the elements of it, and we can see that what was going on was very serious. It was a serious threat. And we can determine some of these things um, by the many allusions Paul makes to them and to the counter-emphases that he makes and the flow of his arguments and the warnings that he gives. He even, as he's teaching about Christ, he uses some of the very same catchwords and phrases that the false teachers were using. <clears throat> and he uses it against them, which is a great way to argue. And he speaks specifically about the ideas that truthfully can only be found in Christ Jesus because of who he is, that's his person, and what he's done, his work. And some examples of these are, some of these catchwords are, for instance, mystery. 
in chapter 127 and fullness in chapter 2 verse 9. And then we have knowledge and wisdom in verse 3 and elementary principles or rudiments in verse 8. And then delighting in humility and the worship of angels in verse 18 and self-imposed worship in verse 23. But the bottom line is, friends, that ultimately the Colossian heresy detracted from the person and the work of Christ. It sought to add stuff to Christ. It called for human works um, based on some kind of human philosophy. It, it tried to develop a religious system designed around that. And they promoted false ideologies. These teachers in Colossae, they denied Jesus' incarnation. They denied the fact that God was born into this world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. They believed that Jesus was just some kind of a spirit being who had the illusion of being real. The Gnostics of the day were also the false teachers that said that Jesus was not the creator. They said that he was not God in human flesh, that he was not enough for salvation, but that there was a deeper spiritual knowledge that was required to get on the path to salvation. They were the ones who taught that you could actually become a God yourself. You, you just had to do enough spiritual stuff to achieve a higher spirituality and to get into heaven. And so what Paul is doing here is he's countering these teachings. He's countering these heretics in the church and he's presenting them with a letter that has as its primary theme the supremacy of Christ and the fruitful and the effective power of the gospel. Yeah. Excuse me? Dealing with a pro-Gnostic influence in the church, the fact that you're saying that Jesus may not have had a physical body. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so do you think that that's uh, pre-Gnostic or is it like full-bred Gnosticism at that stage? Probably a combination of the both of the two. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure I understand what you... So, no, I'm asking, the, the comment you made is that they believe that um, teachers in Colossae denied the incarnation of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So, and they had a problem with the body of Jesus. Um, well, these are the illusions that Paul makes. Okay. So, it's difficult to define specifically whether it was pre-Gnostic or, or Gnostic, but these are the illusions they make. You know, I'm asking because it sounds very Gnostic in essence, so, the, so I don't know I mean, how far you've looked into that. Well, that's why I call them Gnostics. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, he, he wants to give this message very clearly and very solidly that Christ is sufficient, Christ is preeminent, Christ is superior in every way, and he, he heralds this as boldly and as loudly as he can. And his method is simple, because all these, these challenges that came 
came to diminish Christ. And so his, his solution to sorting this out is just proclaim Christ as widely and as majestically and as, as to, to explain the complete supremacy of him because when you come to terms with that, everything else just fades away. So he doesn't specifically tackle the issues. He, he speaks of Christ. And that's an amazing way to, to fight all these heresies in the church. Um, in fact, in light of Christ, as you come to terms with Christ, it, some of these things even seem ridiculous to begin with. Absolutely ridiculous. And you ask, why does he do this? Why does he take this approach? And it's simply because Christ is, and you can follow with me, in chapter 1, I'll just give you some of the key words. In chapter 1, Christ is God's Son, verse 13, the Son of His love. Verse 14, He's the Redeemer. Verse 15, He's the very image of God. Verse 15, again, He's the Lord of creation. Verse 18, He's the head of the church. Uh, verse 19, He's the fullness of salvation. And verse 20, He's the reconciler of the universe. And then we move to chapter 2. And he speaks of Christ as the one who contains all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And verse 8 is the standard by which all religious teaching is judged. And then in verse 9, the fullness of God, undiminished deity. He just keeps going on and on and on about Christ. Verse 10, he says, Christ is the one under whom all power and authority is subjected. And then verse 15, he's the victor over all cosmic powers. Just magnifying Christ. Verse 17, the reality of the truth foreshadowed in the Old Testament types and figures and regulations and rituals. And then in chapter 3, he moves on. He says, Christ is the one exalted and enthroned at the right hand of God in heaven. Verse 3, he says that Christ is the one in whom we are complete and in whom our life is hidden, protected, and kept. And verse 4, the one by whom our new life will be gloriously manifested and he's coming again. And he just keeps going, and he keeps going, and he keeps going. And so as we get to this passage in Colossians 1, verse 13 to 23, over the next three weeks, we will see how Paul shows us three aspects of Christ's superiority, or his preeminence. Three aspects which provide us with such a lofty view of Christ, and his work, and his person, that it will counter any false teaching that comes our way. You know, I've often heard the example used when bank tellers are taught um, how to identify false notes. They are actually never shown a false note. They are only shown the genuine article. They are taught to study the genuine article so intently that when they see a false one, they can recognize it immediately. And that's the same thing that Paul is doing here. He wants us to know that there is no one like Christ. He's vastly superior to anyone who has ever or will ever live on this earth. And he does this in three ways. And we'll see it, as I said, over three weeks. Firstly, this week, he shows us that Jesus is superior <clears throat> in his station. And by station, I mean he's superior in his position as Lord and King. And we see that in verse 13 through 15 and 17 and 18. And then secondly, next week, we'll see that Jesus is superior in his sovereignty. And we see that in verse 16 through 19. 
And then the week after that, we'll see that Jesus is superior in the salvation that we have in him. And that's in verse 14 and then verse 20 through 23. So superior in his station, superior in his sovereignty, and superior in his salvation. That's our Lord and our Savior. And so with that, let's look at number one. Jesus is superior in his station, in his position as Lord and King. Verse 13 to 15, 17 and 18. And, and in that, we will see three ways. Three ways that he is superior in his station. Three ways that as you see them, they'll help you to stand resolute in your faith in the deity of Christ. In verse 13 to 15, we see his superior identity. And then in verse 17, we see superior importance. And in verse 17 and 18, we see superior influence. So his identity, his importance, and his influence. Verse 14, referring to God, Paul says, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's amazing. Jesus is introduced to us right off the bat in the spectacular fashion as the son of God's love. And it starts off, the text opens with a clause that describes the salvific work of the Father. And it leads to this amazing introduction. And not, it not only introduces Christ to us, but it also affirms for us the unique authority of Christ. And you may ask, why does it do that? Well, because it is in Jesus in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in other words, it's, it's in his work of redemption that he parallels the Father's work of redemption. Both of them equally invested both of them equally involved in the redemption of mankind. And so it tells us about the unique authority of Jesus Christ. And added to that, it not only does it point to Jesus' relationship with the Father, but the reference to the kingdom of the Son of his love indicates to us that he has a royal title. It's the title of a king. And we know that he is the king of the pro promised Davidic line. And it's so, so it's with this in mind that Paul refers to Jesus when he then in the next verse says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so here in verse 15, the, the focus now shifts from the Father to the Son. And Paul begins by pointing to Christ's true representation and revelation of God. He makes two claims in this text. He says, firstly, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And we know that the word image comes from a word that gives us our word icon. It means a copy or a likeness. We know from John 1.18, it says, no one has seen God at any time. In other words, to us, God is, a, is an invisible God. But John goes on to say, referring to Jesus, he says, he is the only, begotten, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father and says, He has explained Him. And that's exactly what Jesus told His disciples in John 49 when He said to them, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. And in verse 11 when He said, Believe Me that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me. 
Even the writer of Hebrews said that Jesus was the express image of his person. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Jesus was the precise reproduction of God in every respect. And so what Paul is saying here is that when you see when you see Jesus, you also see God the Father, one and the same. And all the while, in Colossae, the, the Gnostics, the false teachers, were trying to make Jesus less than God. They were trying to create him as some cosmic big brother to us, and that's all. And Paul reminds us very strongly in this text that Jesus is God. And not only is he God then, he always has been God, and he always will be God. Simple as that. And then verse 15 also says that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now, the word firstborn, generally when we talk about firstborn, we are talking about the chronological order in which our children are born. So we have a firstborn and a secondborn and a thirdborn. And it's that idea that fueled some of the false teaching in Colossae that Jesus was somehow a creation of God. The same way that we were created. And that he was just the first one of us to be created. But the difference is, friends, that in the Greco-Roman society, in the Greco-Roman context, the word firstborn was generally used as a legal term to refer to the one who is the legal heir of a father's estate. And that was not always the firstborn child. In fact, as the heir to a father's estate, that person also inherits the power and the authority of the father over that estate. And in this instance, then, the word here used for firstborn refers to that which is first in rank, first in order of priority. And this places Jesus at the head and first in rank over all of creation. And that's what we'll see next time in verse 16, where Jesus is the creator. So Jesus, Paul says clearly here that Jesus is first in rank. He's standing over all created beings because he is the creator. And to this end, Jesus is called the firstborn because he's preeminent over all of creation. He's the one who possesses the right of inheritance over creation. And so simply stated, Jesus is superior in his station as Lord and King because he is God. Simple as that. But then we also see Jesus as superior in his station as Lord and King because of his superior importance. Watch this. The first part of Colossians 1.17 says, and he is before all things. And then the last part of verse 18 says, He himself will come to have first place in everything. Now the prepositional phrase used here in the Greek is propanton. And it can denote two things. Number one, it can denote the idea of time. In other words, he is before all things. Or it can denote the idea of rank. In other words, he is above all things. Okay? Now, in the light of the consistent temporal use of this preposition elsewhere in Paul's writings, 
A temporal sense cannot be completely denied. It cannot be excused completely. And what it means to us is that in this text, Paul is also uh, affirming the pre-existence of Christ. But at the same time, as in the earlier case of the use of firstborn, in verse 15, the focus of this passage is on the supremacy of Christ. And we can then argue on the basis of this and that elsewhere in the New Testament, the exact phrase propantone is used always in the, as a marker of rank and priority. Examples of this are in James 5.12 and 1 Peter 4.8. And so the word before then here means to be above all things, to be in front of things, to be first in rank once again. It serves to remind us, friends, that Jesus is in front of everything and everyone in the universe. He's to take the first place in everything. He's to take first place. Nothing is as important as him. Nothing is to come before him. Nothing is to outshine him. He's to be out front in our lives. He's to be out front in our families, our priorities, our church, our dreams, our aspirations, our work, our worship our recreation, everything Jesus Christ is to be in front as we follow him. He is the one that we follow after. And to truly follow Christ means that he has to become everything to us. You know what it's like. You know what human beings are like. We are created to worship and we are created to follow. And so everyone follows something. You either follow friends or you follow popular culture or you follow family or sport or music or you follow selfish desires or you follow careers or you follow God. It's a harsh thing to come to terms with, but Matthew 6, 24 tells us clearly that we can only follow one thing at a time. I'm reminded of a video my daughter sent me some time ago about this couple who has this dog. And they put the dog down on the ground, and then they stand next to him, and then they run in two directions calling his name. And then the dog sits there going like this. He's not sure. He can only follow one of them. He can't go in both directions. Now, it's a, it's a silly example, but it's something like that. In Exodus, Exodus 20, verse 3, God clearly says, You shall have no other gods before me. And the same instructions repeated us, for us a number of times. Jesus says in Luke 9.23. If anyone wishes to come, to, to come after me. He must deny himself. And take up his cross daily. And follow me. So what does it mean to follow Christ? It means that our entire lives. Are submitted to him. It means that we surrender every part of our life to him. He's to rule and reign in our lives. Making us vessels. Acceptable for use, 2 Timothy 2.21. As we follow Christ, he becomes our primary desire. He becomes the measure by which we live our lives. As we follow Christ, we seek his presence. We seek to abide in him. We seek to obey him. As we follow Christ, we, we become more and more responsive to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Philippians 2.12. In following, in following Christ, we understand that this world is ultimately not our own. It's not our home. 
And so we're willing to give our all to him. Following Jesus, friends, means that we strive to be like him. Jesus always obeyed his Father. So what we do is we strive to do the same. John 8, 29. Following Jesus means that every decision, every dream is filtered through the Word of God because our goal is to glorify Christ. To follow Christ means we apply the truths we learn from Scripture and live as if Jesus is walking next to us every minute of every day. Friends, Christ is superior in his station because of his superior importance, because he's first in rank and priority. And then also, we see Jesus as superior in his station as Lord and King because of his superior influence. Watch Colossians 1.18 says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And there again is the same idea, that idea of first in rank. We see words like head, beginning, firstborn, first place. Paul is really laying it on thick. He's to have first place in everything. Why? Because he is the head of the body, the church. And the word head here means to be supreme, to be chief, to be master, to be lord. And you ask the question, why does he have that honor? Well, simply because he died for the church. He purchased the church with his own blood. The church is his and he is the head of the body. So now you ask, what does that have to do with influence? Well, your head controls your body, right? The head influences and determines every movement you make, every step you take, every action, every start, every stop is determined by your head. And in return, your body responds. Your body obeys. Your body doesn't think about it. It just does what the head says, right? But here's another thing for us that we've got to keep in mind. Your body does not listen to my head. And neither does my body listen to your head. You cannot sit there and make my hands move any which way you want. I think pastors would like to be able to do that. But you can't. And the same is to be true in the church. It's the body of Christ. And that's why there's an article in front of the word head. It indicates to us the absolute identification of Christ with his subject, the body. He is the head of the church. Only he has the right to control the church, to control the direction of the church, the right to command the church, the right to lead the church. And friends, as he does that, he's also responsible to protect the church, to care for the church. He's responsible for its reproduction, for its growth, for its provision, and for its continuation. Christ will build his church. All we have to do is submit to his headship, submit to his lordship. That's it. We have to just be faithful to do what he's called us to do, no matter how big or how small that is. We don't make him lord. He is lord, right? 
Jesus, uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost said in Acts 2.36, he said to the Jews that were there, he said, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So we can't make him Lord. He is Lord. All we have to do is surrender our lives to his lordship. This means that when scripture commands us to love one another, we do that. Means that when Scripture commands us and not to commit adultery or not to steal, we don't do those things. It's as simple as that. We surrender to His Spirit. We are filled with His Spirit, and what that means is we yield ourselves to His control. And as we do that, we respond positively to His working. We respond kindly when someone mistreats us. We don't lie to each other. We're honest in our business dealings. We spend time in prayer. We spend time in his word as he opens it up to us. Friends, he is superior in his station as Lord and King because he is God. He's superior in his station as Lord and King because of his superior importance. He's the first in rank. He's superior in his position as Lord and King because of his influence over us as his church. He's the one who controls everything. Right? Our attention is to be directed to the Son of God's love every day of our lives. To Jesus, to trust him, to love him, and to worship him. He's the image of the invisible God. As believers, our lives and our conduct, the way we walk is informed and motivated by how we regard Christ Jesus. He is preeminent above all, and that should be enough for us. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we serve a God that is not weak and that's not powerless. powerless. We thank you that we serve a God that is supreme, that is first in rank and order and priority, that is sovereign of all creation, that stands as the head of creation, but a God that chose to redeem us because of love and grace and mercy. And we worship you in Christ's name. Amen.